You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble on the drum and kick all trouble out the door beat me that rhythm on the drum beat me that rhythm on the drum beat me that rhythm on the drum and kick all trouble out the door kick him 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 out the Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. Kelly Whitworth, the world's greatest producer, is having some technical issues, so we can't have verbal jousting at this time of the program. But we have an excellent guest, and just in case you're wondering who this is, yes, it's Joseph Toscana. Sorry to disappoint you. Obviously, you expected somebody. I'm all good now. But I just had to flick a switch. Did you? That's what I suggested. I did suggest turn on the switch. Very professional here, Deborah. Yeah. All good. All good. Yeah, she's very good at this. I said to her, turn on the switch. She was going to get technical assistance from the experts. Oh, we got there in the end, oh, didn't look. we? But nobody needed to well, here know. Here we are now. Yeah, nobody needed to know, Kelly. No. No, no. Well, this we want people to understand this is live and the program is podcast and you can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. It's the first time in, I think, in about four or 500 interviews that I've actually in a position where I actually can remember the guest's name. Because I've got true, the, it's true. I've got this book in front of me <laughs> with the name Deborah Goff, G-O-U-G-H. How are you, Deborah? I'm well, thank you, Joe. How are you? Um, and I'm also... I'm, doesn't matter how I am. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just the talking head. You're the guest, <laughs> but I am impressed that you spelt Deborah correctly. In the old style. In the old style. So, what year were you born? 1969. That's not old. That's young compared to me. <laughs> that is very young. You were born after the 80s. The 1968 riots, the assassination of Martha Luther, Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, the inv- the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia. All those. So you were very, very young. Where were you born? Uh, I was born in the Footscray Hospital, which was then the Western General Hospital. Ah, the good old Western General. And are your parents still alive? They are, both of them. So we can't say anything naughty about them. (laughs) Obviously, they were wonderful, caring parents. Separately, yes. Separately. (laughs) What do you you mean they separated at one stage? They're well, truly divorced. (laughs) Well, how long ago was that? I think they separated when I was 12, and by the 12. time I was 14, it was now, if legal. Now, if I was really astute, I'd ask you the effect it had on you, but I'm not going to do that. Where were they born here in Australia? 
Uh, my father was born in uh, Southall in England, and my mother was also born in Footscray. Or maybe Yarraville. Yarraville, yeah. Well, there's a big difference in those days. You realise that? Yarraville and Footscray. Mm. You know, it's chalk and cheese. It's like Turak and Paran. Sure. <laughs> Do you have any siblings? I have a sister, Jeanette. Jeanette. Younger or older? Younger. My God, she's even younger than you are. <laughs> and she's a vet nurse in Werribee. A vet, not at that horrible, not at that the infectious diseases Werribee hospital where they... No, you, where not they got all, all They've got all the horrible diseases and no, you got to gown up and <laughs> no, go through a there. shower. Not that one. No, not there. Please, no, not there. <laughs> not there. Have you got any rallos in Geelong? I know a fella called Graham Goff. Is he a relation of yours? He's no. still got an English accent. No, I'm not. I don't think I'm related to a Graham Goff. <laughs> I'm related to Goffs in Seaholm, Altona. Mm. Um, mm. It's a pretty common name, I suppose, surname, isn't it? But when I was a kid, we were the only Goffs in the phone book, as anyone yeah. in the phone book was related yeah. to us. Yeah, because Goff is not a common surname. It I've, is not. I've, I've, that's three people I've known in my life. Yeah, now but they all Goff. live in Geelong. No, one was the Prime Minister. I oh, think was called Goff Whitlam, wasn't <laughs> exactly he? Exactly. So that's that's Goff. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was just testing you. I was Kelly, testing Kelly, you. Kelly, just relax. I was all testing right. you. Just relax. Just, just let me ask the questions, all right? Don't. I mean, Goff Whitlam. We actually rehearse all this. You realise <laughs> this is this is not spontaneous. It's all rehearsed. <laughs> Our, so, did were you educated, as they say, at Footscray? I was educated at St. Well, Saint Augustine's in Yarraville, Saint Paul's in West Sunshine, mm. uh, Christ the King and Chisholm Colleges in Ooh. Braybrook. Ooh. Um, so a very strong pedigree there. Very strong pedigree. And I went to university at Deakin. At no time when you were going through those Catholic schools did somebody tap you on the shoulder and said you should be a nun? No. Didn't happen? <laughs> no chance. No. I no. was too radical for them. <laughs> In, oh, tell me about your radical pedigree in primary school. Um, well, I can tell you about my high school. No, 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 no. Let's go back to primary school now. Were you rude to the nuns? Did you have nuns or they had been phased out by then? Oh, they were well phased out. There yeah. wouldn't have been enough nuns to teach yeah. at that we, we had a, an amazing uh, nun, still a practising nun, Sister Margaret Ryan, which we chatted with. It was about a year ago, wasn't it, Kelly? Margaret Ryan. You know Margaret Ryan. It was about her. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What about her? Sorry. Amazing woman. Remember, Sister Very Margaret so, Ryan yeah. is a nun. Yeah, she still lives in a nunnery. Yeah, There's yeah. three of them left somewhere out there. <laughs> but she does a lot of amazing. She's in New Guinea at the minute. So nobody said to you you needed a religious career. Never. Now, before your parents separated, did you go to church? Yes. Every Sunday. Yes. And after they separated. Less, I less so after I was sixteen. I would say. What you started thinking? Yeah, probably. So what do you mean? What, what happened at high school? What did you do? No, oh, well, I just had other things I was doing. I was having fun, going out, and not really worry too much about it. To be honest, having fun. Yeah, having going fun. Going out, you yeah. turned your back on your creator, did you? <laughs> no, not necessarily. No. I just didn't. Want to go to his joint anymore? Uh, fair enough. 
<laughs> you wanted to go down to the <laughs> on night On a Sunday club. morning. <laughs> yeah. You wanted to go out on Saturday night. Yeah. And you were too tired in the morning, I sure. assume. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, any escapades you'd like to share with our three listeners? <laughs> um, well, I was going to say my great um, radicalness as a teenager was that I helped lead a strike at my school because the water tap water taps were turned off because there was some problem with the water mm. and we led a strike and we all got to go home. <laughs> yeah. Tell us how you organised this. What year was it and how did you organise it? This I would have been in year seven mm. and the school went to year 10 and it was a hot day and we had to – we had no – water in the bubble taps and so I pointed out that this was a health and safety issue. Ooh, <laughs> I like I love this. And that we should organise and meet in the um, in the quadrangle mm. and I remember. And what did all the other young ladies say? Oh, they thought that was a good idea if we went on strike because <laughs> we might get to go home. All right. And so that's what we did. We went on strike and we got to go home. What, you just refused to go into classes? Yep. That's disgusting. Oh, awesome. That's yeah, disgusting. It's pretty fun. That's, dis- that's <laughs> disgusting. It's not awesome. It's disgusting, Kelly. Oh, calm down. Yeah, I can't believe we've got. I mean, I, we had a guest once who actually started his radical life in kindergarten as he expelled from kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> and he well, didn't do anything really bad. Um, so, what year did you graduate from high school? I must have graduated in 87. So we had HSC then, didn't we still? Oh, I was the first year of VCE. VCE, mm. VCE, and obviously you passed with flying colours. I passed enough to go to where I wanted to go, is what I would say. What, you wanted to go overseas, <laughs> did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted to go to Deakin. At that time, RMIT's journalism course, which was the only other course, mm. I was strongly advised by the ages career, oh, the cadet counsellor not to go there. At that time, because it wasn't... What? Not to go there? Not to go there. Not to go to RMIT's journalism course. Obviously, they weren't taking out enough advertising in the age in those days. <laughs> I can't see why not. So oh. you actually... You, so they had a cadet at the age? Well, they had cadets at the oh. age. They had between four and seven at that time, at mm. every year. Mm. But the year that I graduated from uni was the year the Herald and the Sun amalgamated. Amalgamated. So that meant there were a lot less so cadetship. So the Sun News Pictorial became the Herald Sun yes. in that year. Yes. Ah, that's fascinating. I, rem- I remember when it joined, I used to know, uh, God, what was his name? This is, how, but this is what happens when you come, get my age, you, f- <laughs> you forget people. But uh, I knew a few of the lads there who'd been there for years, did most of their work at the bar at the Phoenix? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. I'm yeah. well acquainted. With the Phoenix? <laughs> well, much later I was acquainted with the with the Phoenix because I was out in suburban newspapers for a bit. Right, right. So why journalism? Um, well, I had this friend of my mother's who was pretty amazing person and I remember we were at the... Oh, hang on, hang on. You just can't say that. You've got to tell us why she was amazing. Oh, or she was... Yeah. She um, was a school teacher. She became a school teacher so she could 
and she got married so she could move out of home. She worked in... That was pretty normal in those days. Yeah. It was the passage for young women. She left after a... She left the marriage after (laughs) a year. That's right. You know, you had had home servitude and then you had... And then you added husband duties to that in those days. Yeah, so she um, – and then she travelled all over Europe. Um, she had tanks r- run over one of her cars when she was – I think it was – Prague? Six, oh, no, it would have been uh, Prague in 68 before you were born or – Yeah, it was before I was born. So it would have been Prague 68 or Hungary. Hungary was a bit more violent. It would be Prague 68 most likely. Most likely, yeah. and um, yeah. she didn't didn't take any shit, basically. And she was very funny, and she was great to my mum, and mm-hmm. she was great to me. And she sat me was sitting one day waiting for my mum to finish in the shops at Sunshine Plaza, and she said, "What are you going to do with your your What do you want to do when you finish school?" Which was the first time someone had ever asked me, "What am I going to do?" But not when I grow up. I think because she already thought I was pretty grown up. Mm-hmm. And um, she, I said to her, because I had a couple of crazy ideas on a fireman and all this sort of thing. And Well, um, you were going to get gender reassigned to become a fireman. Something like uh, that. Right, okay. I was going to push boundaries. And she mm-hmm. said, well, well, what do you like to do? And I said, mm-hmm. I like to write. Right. And she said, well, have you thought about being a journalist? And, you, and well, I hadn't. Yeah. I hadn't. And I was 12 and... That was a pretty seminal moment for me. So mm. yeah. it, it, It's funny like that in life. Mm. There are those moments that change your tra- trajectory and change your life. Yeah. And there are people like that, you know, who can do that. Now, if I was being really rude, which I will never be, I would say she radicalised you. <laughs> <laughs> and she should have been put away in prison for radicalising you. That's what they do these days, you know that. <laughs> Um, Yeah, well, she was pretty radical. For her her time, she was pretty radical. Mm. And, um, yeah, so then I just, I remember thinking, oh, well, my father reads the paper when he gets home. Mm. And my grandfather always read The Sun. Mm. Um, Sorry, The Sun News Pictorial. Sun News Pictorial, which is being digitised by the State Library. We're very excited. Mm. and I think I thought that was that I started to read newspapers more carefully, and I decided that was definitely what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Lots of people told me I wouldn't be able to do that. Why? I was a I was a girl, mm-hmm. and it was hard work and hard to get in, and I might not succeed. So when you graduated, so did you go to the age before or after you graduated? Um, I was in high school when I was a clerk at the age. So mm. my job was filing photos and sending videotapes back to <coughs> TV stations after they'd been reviewed. Right. So, well, that's very productive. I don't, well, think I, jo- I don't think that job exists anymore. Well, they've got people working full-time <laughs> on that kind yeah. of thing now. But mm. um, at the time, I was like a three-, four-hour job a week. And then... I, while I was at uni, I um, went to, I ended up doing, I was working at the Pancake Parlour as a waitress and ended up talking to an editor who said, who I'd previously been interviewed by, and then he said to me, Dude, would I be interested in casual work? 
um, with a suburban newspaper, this suburban newspaper group, which is out in the western suburbs, and I said yes. So I began working for him, mostly out in Melton, a little bit in Werribee. And, yeah, it was, you know, one week of doing that and I didn't go to uni those weeks and, um, yeah, it was a good good grounding to start. And what did you think of the journalism course at Deakin that you completed? Um, I really loved third year. Why? I got to um, meet um, a giant of journalism, Craig McGregor. All right. Mm. And he wrote the most beautiful uh, feature stories on individuals and he gave me a lot of encouragement and I also, I think you've started to be treated more, the journalism lecturers started to treat you more like they knew you were going to get on with it and do this as a career Um, and I just, well, I did a bit of TV, a Mm -hmm. bit of radio. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, TV? Yeah, we made we made our own little t- little oh, news right. segments. Oh, right. Are you news segments? Right. Yeah, news segments. You thought you were a newsreader. Yeah, I'm not right. a newsreader. It's no. never going to be my super superpower. No, no. <laughs> all right. And uh, when you graduated, um, and then I went. Um, I was well. The same editor called me up and he said, "Do you do you want to come and do some work for us?" And I said, "Yes." What days? <laughs> and he said. No, no, full time. I can mm-hmm. offer you a cadetship. Yep. Wow. Brilliant. And I was so relieved because, right. you know, mm. there were just right. n- no cadetships mm. really. I mean, there were there were cadetships offered, but it was so hard to get them because right. it, it come. It is very hard. But I'm going to ask you some questions because if I was interviewing you for the age as a young cadet, I would ask you three questions, okay. and if you got one wrong, you wouldn't be a cadet at the age. One, what year was the age started or began? I forget now. I'm more than 180 years old. 1854, three weeks before the Eureka Rebellion. Who founded the age? David Syme. Very good. You got one out of three. (laughs) And the last one. No pressure. (laughs) No pressure. What was the famous masthead, the original masthead on the age? to denote its radical stance when it was actually formed. Mm. I don't know. The tumbrel, the uh, cart that used to take the prisoners during the French Revolution to the guillotine. Ah. Ah, so obviously... So the, I would not have got a cadetship <laughs> then under your rules. No, well, I actually had a letter published, I think it was the 150th anniversary, just reminding the age of their radical past <laughs> and how they'd slipped, slipped away. <laughs> but uh, I knew the letters editor, so I got in. Now, getting back, so did you specialise once you started the age? Any particular section um, they put you in? Well, I was um, in suburban newspapers for about 10 years, which when mm-hmm. um, I worked my way up from cadet to editor of a group of newspapers, I started a magazine so what group, for them. So what group was that? They were the, um, the inner western group of papers, so the Footscray Mail, the Williamstown Advertiser, the Altona Laverton Mail and the Advocate, which was Sunshine and Keelock. Mm. So what were the big issues at that time for that part of Melbourne? Um, well, lots of traffic and 
those kinds of stories. But my favourite story is um, when I wrote about um, the pier at Williamstown, Gem Pier, and I got this hold of this report which said it was all rotting underneath, it was going to fall down, and there was no money to fix it, and it was a hazard. So they're going to close it. And that is the main tourist pier for Williamstown. So I wrote this article and then I got it got published and I got a phone call that morning from the Premier, Joan Kerner, yep. which was her local seat. And she said to me she would be she, – that, that pier was not going to close right. and she would kind of find the money yes. and <laughs> – and I needed to write a retraction and I said, well, I don't think I can write a retraction because as it stands now, there is no money, it mm, is a hazard mm, and it is closing. Mm, mm. Well, she did find the money. Um, did cause a bit of a stink with the PM, the Port of Melbourne Authority at the time. What, they didn't want the pier? They did want the pier, but they had other piers that were working piers that they would have much preferred to have spent the money uh, on. Um, so... so- yeah, so I wouldn't be amiss if I went down to Williamstown Pier and put a little plaque on and said, <laughs> the Deborah Goff, you know, uh, what, what shall we call it? The Deborah Goff Survival Pier. <laughs> Without you. No, seriously, it, 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 it highlights how important local papers were. Yeah, that would be know? my first big scoop is what I would say. Mm. And yep. then from there I went... I got hired to work for Melbourne Express, which was I the, morning, Melbourne com- Express, yes. the morning commuter paper. Uh, that was the freebie, wasn't it? It was a freebie. <laughs> that was the first freebie. That was the first freebie. Yeah. And um, enormous amount of fun. <laughs> Why? Tell us. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I worked for a man called Andrew Holden, who ended up being the editor of The Age. Mm. And he hired a lot of people who knew all the rules about newspapers but were prepared to break them and see how it looked Mm. and because it was a free paper we had a lot of freedom to do that um so we did some wacky things we did you know i think we ran a a drawing of a thong on the newspaper on the front of the newspaper (laughs) one time which really in hindsight was a mistake but it was fun at the time it wasn't a mistake i mean that was a that's an aussie icon yeah maybe not in melbourne but you know further north (laughs) yeah further north um and then Uh. that paper got um shut down they said they'd find us all jobs and then the twin towers came down so nobody was spending any money because everyone was worried and I had about three weeks where I wasn't technically employed, mm. but I found myself a little. But I kept writing freelance articles, and then I found myself a little bolt hole in the real estate section of the Age. Well, you weren't doing the pictures; you weren't drawing those little pictures. Yeah, no, those. I was little... writing about. Well, writing about news stories to do with real estate. Right. Um, and then I got to do the private property column, which was fun. Was fun. Excuse me. Maybe your idea of fun and mine. <laughs> Could you explain well, why it was fun? To me, it sounds very dreary. Well, yeah, it ended up talking to people who were move, usually movers and shakers in Melbourne, or the mm. house was very interesting because it had a historical right. kind of reason why. So it was you're popular. picking interesting now. Yeah, yeah, you picked interesting things. Yeah. It was your. You mm. had a lot of freedom about what you chose. 
um, you know, one woman rang me one day and she said, oh, my house is for sale. I've lived here a long time. Nick Cave used to, and the birthday party used to come to my house afterwards and this is their after party for the <laughs> birthday party. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that is the story. Right. Um, that kind of thing was yeah. fun. And just other, like, and other, like, business reporters would say to me, I really enjoy your column because I can tell what's going to happen next. When, right. the, when the auditors start buying property, you know the economy is going down the gurgler. Right, right. <laughs> uh, look, don't worry about Kelly. She just puts up a piece. Of, see, we're very high tech here. <laughs> she puts up a piece of paper because I can't see the clock. Ah, right. It tells me f- we've done 30 minutes. Oh, we're halfway. Halfway. This is Radical Australia. We're chatting. We don't do interviews with Deborah Goff, an extraordinary human being. And she's not even agreeing. <laughs> not necessarily. Now, can I ask you a very, very, very personal question? Sure. When did you decide to cross the Yarra? This is all Western, you know, and south, you know, this is all north of the Yarra. There is a whole city south of the Yarra. There is a whole, well, my dad lives in South Yarra and I'll <laughs> probably never live there. Um, but um, when we were looking for a house, my husband, or my, it wasn't my husband then, but we were... And when, when did all this happen? Ah, uh, let's see. He was in Canberra. Mm-hmm. And I was here. My boy's 18... <laughs> 19 years ago. 19 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all right, that's all right. So you took the leap and you crossed the Yarra. Yeah. We could have lived in Yarraville, but I mm. decided I had enough. Uh, so where did you move to? Just a suburb, not the address. Brunswick. Brunswick. Oh, oh, how boring. Yeah, I know. But it wasn't that boring when uh, 19 years ago. No, it wasn't. No, no, no. <laughs> when I first came to Melbourne in, was it 76, I was living with uh, an alcoholic and, and her teenage son in a little room in Brunswick. So that's it, it, there was character. There was yeah, character. There was character. There was real character in those days. Like at one stage, I we had some rabbits for the kids, and the neighbours stole them and ate them. So you know, it's all those things. You know, character. <laughs> so when you were a doctor, when yeah, you were yeah. studying to be no, no. After I became a doctor, I came uh-huh. to Melbourne. Yeah. So, excuse me, I asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> I knew she. I knew this was a smart person. She was a reporter, a journalist, educated a deacon, journalist course, editor. I knew sooner or later she'd ask me a question, and I answered it. I've been restraining myself. I know, because <laughs> that's what I do for a living. <laughs> the tables are turned. Ah, oh, look, it's all right. Are you a three CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. 
You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. So uh, I've got this big fat book in front of me with your name on it. What's all this about? So in 2017, a little bit before 2017, a friend of mine was over at my house for dinner and she said, we're talking about career and life. And So what had happened to all your journalistic yearnings? I, I still um, yearn for journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also uh, realised that I had a special skill that... What? meant that I could get informa- get people's stories from them and that quite often the best story of the day was not necessarily um, the story that appeared in the paper. Well, you're quite right, isn't it? Like, so mm. I would go out and interview someone. They would tell me, that often on the worst day of their life, yep. they would tell me what happened on the worst day of their life and then they'd say, oh, but I did this really other amazing thing mm. and this other amazing thing was amazing but mm. because it wasn't part of the news cycle, yes. that wasn't my story. And I could go back to the news desk and say, oh, and that person I interviewed last week because, you know, something terrible happened to them, this other great thing they did in their lives, can we write a story about that? Well, the answer was invariably no. Mm. And I thought, well, those those stories are really important to mm. the people who know and love them. And those stories need to be captured and it's not it's, it's not fair that they're not. And it's I have a skill where I can draw information from people and, you know, nothing they don't want to tell. And even if they do tell me things that they don't want to don't want published, well they you've got to ask yourself what's the value in publishing things that are not um they don't want to be remembered for, mm. um, but that and you can turn those into a narrative, a storyline, so that they have something to leave to their children or something they can unpack themselves. It's been sometimes horrific, sometimes sad, um, or happy, or and explain themselves and explain explain their feelings sometimes to themselves for the first time. Was this a, a road? To Damascus experience or something that slowly grew on you? I reckon the first time I saw that was when um, I interviewed this woman who had, there's a bit of a backstory to it, but she called me up because her niece had survived a terrible train crash in India. She said, oh no, she'll be okay because she's from Goodstock. I'm German. I survived the bombing of Dresden. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh my goodness, that's a fantastic story. I'm just going to go interview her about surviving the bombing of Dresden. And then years later, I saw on the fridge of somebody else's house that same article on their fridge. Mm-hmm. And I knew at that moment that Although I enjoyed writing that story, that that family treasured that story. Mm. And this is the most important part of my work, is giving those treasures to people. And they might not be ready to listen to them or read them just yet, but that is the most important part of my work. Do people really want to tell their story? 
Mm, yeah, mostly. Mm. And sometimes people don't realise they want to tell their story. I mean, you would know too from mm. interviewing people that unpacking what they've done and who they've been and how they got to where they are, why they made this decision and and explaining sometimes those things, sometimes even to themselves or, mm. um, you know, or you're talking about the, deci- the decisions they might have made when, when their mother was dying, for instance. Yep. Those mm. things sometimes ha- hard to talk about, but they're easier to talk about with someone who you get to know but is essentially a stranger and is not going to judge you or not going to feel especially sad because, I mean, you'll feel sad for them if they're, if they're crying, um, but you don't... You don't take that away and no, feel bad you, for the day. Yeah, you, you know. can compartmentalise it is, sure. the, is the term. You kind of, a little part of your brain sure. doesn't overwhelm the rest of it. And that, that is a skill. Yeah. It is a skill because a lot of people, as you know, burn out and uh, they burn out because it, they're overwhelmed by what they've yeah. seen and heard and talked about, especially, you know, in, in the media world. You see yeah. it all the time. You've never felt that? Um, I did actually quite late in my career... I got sent down down Collins Street to because all the trams were stopped. The trams were stopped because there'd been a suicide, and someone had jumped from a window on a Monday morning, and I was among the first reporters there. I was there before Three AW, which is of no mean feat, let me tell you. <laughs> um, no, they were in the same building. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I know we're in the same building. Um, and I was talking to the three AW reporter, and she made mention of, and, and I'm not blaming her at all, mm. but she made mention of what was on the wall. Yes. And I looked. Of course, I looked, and and then I thought, what am I doing here? Why am I here? All right, the trams have stopped. Well, Yarra trams will toot, tweet as soon as they're ready. What am I doing here? And um, I decided, well, I'd ring the office. No, no, stay. But what for? We know what the story is. Yarra trams will tweet when they're ready, to, when they're moving. Oh, but they might move before then. Well, big whoopee. Sorry. <laughs> We we missed the story by five seconds. Oh, five know. seconds. No, but no. no. That's that's just not unheard of. I know. You let three AW beat you. And an, that, that, those scumbags. It's unnecessary. It's, it's unnecessary. Unnecessary. Yeah. unnecessary to be the first with that. Yeah, how do you feel about um, the age being taken over by the uh, nine group? I look. I'm not in there. I no, I, that's why I mean you can give us an honest opinion. Yeah. So I think. Um, they look. There's a lot of a lot more cross promotion than there ever was. You know, we're reading about shows on Stan, but to be fair, we read like today is there's a story about Netflix and some TV show, and um, so that a little bit irks me. I do know of the impression I get from my colleagues is that there's a bit more money to spend on the journalism. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, um, I mean, I'm not in there anymore, so I really can't mm. say, I, 
I still love the age. I'm still a subscriber to the age. I still get the paper delivered. Right. Were you now? What was his name? The young chap um, who took over the age and almost single-handedly destroyed it. I was wondering if you were there then. Oh, Warwick fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Warwick, yes. young Warwick. Yes, I was there. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. Um. So, I used to get paid by tick. Uh huh. And I didn't need a lot of money and I just put all the checks in an envelope and then one day I went to the bank to cash my check and they charged me five times for five dishonoured checks because none of them had receivers and managers appointed written stamped on them. Hmm. So there was poor little me with my $30 a week or whatever it was, it wasn't very $45, say, a week, and I lost one paycheck to <laughs> dishonoured paychecks, dishonest <laughs> checks. So that's what it was like. That's, it was that disorganised. It <laughs> yeah. seemed disorganised. Well, I think it's because I just hung on to them and in the meantime receivers yeah. and managers have been appointed. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I was a kid, I don't know if you yeah, idea yeah. about that stuff. No, but I, I, I was a bit shocked when I went past the new age building that it's up for sale. The Media House building? Yeah. No, oh, is it? It's up for sale. It's a beautiful building. It is. It's up for sale. And lovely inside. Mm, not, mm. not that I'm spruiking for well, it. Well, I'm going to take out a ticket tomorrow for Powerball. <laughs> and if I win First Division, maybe I'll make a bid. Who knows? Now, let's get back to this book. And this 2017, you know, road to Damascus moment. What happened in 2017? I took a package. Mm-hmm. and decided that I... At first I thought I might want to write people's obituaries for them because obituaries... And that's my specialty. <laughs> might be hard to, uh, hard to write for some people. Yeah, but it's my specialty. How did you know I've had many obituaries published in the age of interesting characters? I meant for people who speak at funerals, like when they're talking well, about... Well, I've done about eight eulogies this... <laughs> I'm, I'm an expert at eulogies. Oh, Ask, yes, they keep asking me to do eulogies. Who? Well, Deborah's good at it as well. I know, yeah. yeah. Well, I actually formed a company once, which I've still registered, but I've actually never... I'm not like you, where you've gone off and done something. I mean, I've registered a company called Orations Australia. Oh, nice. Maybe I should take you on as the first uh, subcontractor. Maybe. Yeah, so you do eulogies too? No, I don't. Um, I actually decided that it would be better to speak to people while they're alive and get their stories straight while they're living. So, so what, did, what did you do for all these stories? Just leave them in your head? No, I um, set up a company called Stories to Keep mm. and quickly realised that I didn't have the journalist's code of ethics to worry about. And um, <laughs> what, not that? worry about, but it didn't have to guide me. So that's probably that the right you word. Mean you made things up. No, it doesn't. But it means that in journalism you've got to be very impartial, but when you're writing for somebody, mm-hmm. you're writing their story from their point of view. So I um, ended up finding an organisation called Life Stories Australia and because they had a code of ethics, um, which included that, you know, a person's version of truth is their truth. Yes. So even if it might not be everybody's version of truth, it's their version. Right. It's like a family situation. You speak to three different siblings about their experiences and they're just so different. You wonder if they were bred under the same roof and lived in the same bedroom. That's just extraordinary. So this is an extraordinary book. Look, 
so that's we'll, not my only one. I know that. I know that. But I mean, look, I, I, I'm, I'm very superficial, and uh, I like the fact that it's a big, fat, hardcover book. Yeah. You know, is that in Clifton Hill? Those pictures uh the top one is yeah footscray the footscray. bottom, one, bottom yeah. one is in uh, maidstone yeah it's warren and brown the first hundred years so what a company like this would come to you and say can you write our story is that how it works yes it's that simple yep and you do all the research i do all the research all the research you find the photographs yes <laughs> you go to the university of melbourne's archives and you yeah. go through Thousands of pages of the Repco Limited uh-huh. archive and uh-huh. find uh-huh. information and photos and uh-huh. interview people in Shepparton. Right. And <laughs> there's nothing wrong with Shepparton. I live nothing near. Wrong. I live near Shepparton, so just be careful. It's I only a live about. Spot. I only live about 37 k's from Shepparton. I'm pointing at her because she was going to say something rude, rude about you. They could actually have she floods again. So be kind to them. They are lovely people in Shepparton. Thank you. And they also have good hockey pitches. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. They do. So this is an extraordinary enterprise. I'm not going to ask you for the exact figure, but how many copies of this book did you produce? Well, they wanted a thousand, mm. so they got a thousand. Was well, is that a six figure six figure sum to produce that book? Yeah, yeah. Yes, it would be. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So what other type of people come to you, not just businesses? Um, so when I started, I started making what I would call a newspaper lift out on a person's life, um, which is a hardcover book mm-hmm. um, t- designed to look like a newspaper with headlines and pictures and captions and a story that I could weave. Um, so they're, they're very ordinary people with extraordinary stories that are valuable to their family. So the first woman I interviewed, she grew up in Glen Iris. She was much loved by her grandfather and her parents. She had six children. She worked for the tax office briefly, couldn't work once she got married. And that's more or less her story in a nutshell. But it's all the little stories that go to making up her personality. I interviewed a couple who... Um, adopted- how, long, how long would you spend with say with a prospective client well the interview process to do a book of say between 13 and 20,000 words mm-hmm. is between four and maybe eight hours of interviews that's not that's not long time so you've no. actually got it down to a fine art obviously well, I know what I'm looking for when I'm interviewing people. And, you know, sometimes people will say, I don't want to talk about that part of my life. It's not that interesting to me. Right. I just want to talk about this bit. Mm. Um, mm. And that's fine too, you mm. know. I'm, I mean, let pe- them lead it a bit. And people would use derogatory terms like you do family histories. But it's more than a family history, obviously. Well, it's more a social and, and mm. oral history for a, for a person. Right. So I've done... Um, uh, couples, like I had a, a gentleman who, he, if he, if you were talking about what he was famous for, he's probably famous for taking on the Australian Wheat Board and complaining about how the Australian Wheat Board was managed because it wasn't fair to farmers. But actually, one of the best things in his book is his 
engagement party photographs because they're wild. (laughs) Um, They must have been 60s photographs. Yeah, they were. (laughs) Early 60s. Exactly. Um, But, yeah, so so I've had farming families come to me and Mm. say, I want you to do my parent, write write about my parents. Um, I've had a doctor and a surgeon who were really quite reticent to do it because culturally they felt that that wasn't right for them. Um, But I think they're youngest daughter put on tears and said you have to (laughs) and one of the things she said to me is that you know my my father has been so important and integral to the lives of myself and my siblings and my children are so young they won't remember what a great man he was because that's what happens when you do professional training you may not Mm -hmm. have your children until you yeah. Late 30s, early 40s, and obviously your grandchildren don't remember you because you're gone by then. So how many books would you have done since 2017, just roughly? Ten. Ten. Yeah, I think ten. And that's enough to survive on? Uh, well, it depends. Yeah, mostly. Mm. Mostly. The newspaper books are probably, they probably cost more than, because they cost less than, than they are to produce. Yes. Um, I've tried to keep those costs down. I'm trying to work out another way to do this so that it's a bit cheaper again for people. Mm. Um, I do audio interviews. I do, um, but mostly, I mean, depends what it is. I mean, that Warren and Brown book certainly paid for Mm. continuing on in this career. I can imagine. I'm looking at that. I'm touching it. I'm touching it. It's very tactile. It's very tactile. Now, I was... Pretty amazed when we were having a chat with uh, Dr. Percy Rogers that uh, he brought in his book, and I kind of flicked through it after the chatting because I don't do any research on guests, and Kelly can actually vouch for that because I'm too lazy <laughs> to be bothered. I'm not like you, a professional. I just chat. And um, I was impressed that once it was hardcover, but more importantly, it was actually bound and printed in Australia. Sure. Can you still do that? You can. You can still do that. And even on-demand printing. What do you mean on-demand printing? Which means you can print one copy. Excuse me? One copy. One copy. What? They're going to cremate with you when you go. Well, you know, sometimes (laughs) people only want one. I mean, they're not very expensive. The printing itself is the cheapest part of the book. Then what's the expensive part? Me. Are you... (laughs) (laughs) Well, because it takes so much longer to write and yes. to pu- pull together photographs and make sure they're a good enough quality and then do the design and um, get the cover designed. And I don't do the cover designs. I get someone else to do those. Mm. And um, So you outsource? I do. There's some subcontractors. Subcontractors. So, you know, there's some, nobody, somebody needs to do the, do the transcribing. Somebody needs to proofread my work because nobody should really proofread their own work. They won't pick up all the mistakes. Um, and... Yeah, but the printing itself is actually more or less the cheap bit. And how about the hardcover binding? Um, well, it's cheaper to do softcover than it is hardcover. Um, yeah, I'm not sure your question. Um, I'm saying when you look at a book, you see you see very few books with hardcovers these days. I assume it's a cost issue. Well, yeah, mostly. Yeah, mostly. I mean, because uh, you can, I mean, you can produce a. A book, like a single book, mm. 
Hmm. Just roughly. Eleven dollars. You're kidding. <laughs> like if that's the if it's a soft cover and it's yeah. not met the, all that many pages and yeah. Eleven dollars. I mean, there might be a it might be a startup cost of know, hmm. fifty dollars on top of that, which is. Uh, you can produce as many as you want after that. Yeah, but but you're more than just somebody. You're much more than somebody who just publishes books that people bring in. You actually create the content. You don't create the content, but you put the content in order and you yeah. pick and choose what is important. Yeah. Because yeah, you, you may, it's like me having a chat to you. There may be issues that we come... Up with that you don't think are important, but I think are important. That's you right. know, it's the same thing. So you're going to do this for the rest of your life? I reckon, well, I'm 50-something now. I reckon I can do it till I'm 70 pretty easily. Oh, I'm sure you could. I'm 72 and I'm still chatting to people. <laughs> so I'm sure you could do it. And um, where do people... Look, we can't advertise on 3CR. But I'm not going to advertise, but... How do people find you? Do you have a web page or? I do, but a lot of people find me through the Life Stories Association's website. Excuse me, what's that? So it's an association, which is a not-for-profit organisation, and we. Oh, we love that. We can talk about not-for-profits. Good. Yes, (laughs) and um, it's called Life Stories Australia, which is um, a group of life storytelling professionals who are tell stories in audio format in written format and in video format and we all are individual operators so we don't we're not employed by that organization but we just come together as a bit of a collegiate environment and lots of people have found me through that website but they also find some of my colleagues who are very 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 capable Mm. um and some of them are doing quite interesting work some people are some people are doing end-of-life work or helping people te- write their own story, which is also a valuable thing. Mm. Um, and other people will just take the take a story that's already written, might do a structural edit to it um, and proofread it for them and put it into a book and they're happy. Look, I, I've got a candidate for you. <laughs> it's not me. You can relax. <laughs> You know, but I've got a camp. I know a lot of fascinating people. Mm. But uh, how, how, be, how would you be interested in a guerrilla fighter for the West Papua independence movement who was shot and jailed for 10 years, made his way to Australia, and now is the uh, treasurer in exile for the. Uh, you think that'd be an interesting chat? And sure. he speaks And he speaks about five languages, so I'm sure he could accommodate. He can only you. speak to me in English, though. Oh, he can't, <laughs> spe- he can't speak to you in English. Because uh, uh, you know, you know, I've known him for a number of years because we worked together on a number of projects, and I'm a little bit concerned about his health and his ageing, and it would be just it's just an extraordinary story that needs to be told. Mm, so good. it sounds interesting. Yeah, mm, man, that's what you need. You need interesting people, and yeah. I tell you one thing: listeners to Three CR may be odd, unusual. But they are interesting. I can guarantee you that they are always and everyone's interesting. Everyone's interesting. Everyone's interesting. If you delve, delve into their into their story enough, you will find that they've got something interesting about them. Mm. People don't think. But people who say, "Oh, so so is boring." Well, they haven't dug enough into into their personality to know what's interesting. And it's the same with those people. You think, "Oh, they're." Their family's very ordinary. Oh, actually, you just no. don't know them well enough. <laughs> no, the black sheep. You know, it, it, we go through phases. Remember in the, in the past you had the stain. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the convict stain. Everybody, oh, yes. They have the stain. These days, if you're not a convict, you're nobody. <laughs> now you need to be Indigenous. You need to find that 1% of your heritage that's Indigenous. You know, it's just not me. Yeah, it's just, it's just <laughs> extraordinary, you know, how things change. I remember when to be gay was almost akin to being subhuman, mm. you know. I mean, we're old enough to remember these periods, you know, and, yeah. and how things change, how fashions change, how people change. Yeah. And so obviously you incorporate that in your story, do you? Yeah, I do. And one of my favourite bits about working with the age group that I'm working with at the moment, which is, let's, I'll just say men mostly in their in their 70s and 80s, is sometimes have been quite active politically. People like Percy and also yeah. another gentleman who I'm talking to now. And they they tell you a part of history that I don't remember and that my parents were too young to remember in that 1950s and early 60s political environment, yes. which was intensely important in the makeup of Australia and how the Liberal Party ended up in power for so long and the how the communists got in so much, tied themselves in knots, and all that information and the DLP, all that information I feel I didn't know enough about, but I now talk to people who were in the trenches yes. of that of that of of those battles and I just think, oh, it's so fascinating. Mm, mm. And even even things like Festival Hall, it wasn't always called Festival Hall. No, it wasn't. And Melbourne was ne- was. Wasn't always called Melbourne. No. And you know what Lord Melbourne was famous for? Wasn't he uh, the Prime Minister to Queen Victoria? No, he didn't, he didn't become Prime Minister. I think he was the Attorney General in the Whig government in the 1830s. Oh, yeah. Now, his claim to fame is the fact that the last Labourers' revolt, which occurred in England in the 1830s, the... the uh, Captain Swing movement, which was against mechanisation of uh, agricultural work in southern England, he was instrumental in suppressing and destroying that movement. Over 2,000 people were were, uh, arrested in southern England. Um, And the interesting thing was 461 were deported to Australia as convicts for being involved in that movement. And that, that had... That spread into the emerging trade union movement in Australia at that particular point in time. So there's all these. So we, in Melbourne, if we call it Melbourne, we are still honouring this man who told his magistrates to use... I can see a campaign. No, (laughs) there's no campaign. But nobody knows. It's just Melbourne. Who's Melbourne? Who cares? I do. You care? (laughs) Plans for the future, apart from being a granny. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's a good job. I like it. So this is going to go forever and ever and ever. Yeah, well, at least until I'm seventy, I reckon. Uh, And what people come to your house or you go to theirs? I go to them because they're more comfortable in their own house. Yeah, and you get tea and biscuits and coffee. I do that with home visiting as a doctor. I'm still part time, and I like home visits because you get cake and you get tea. (laughs) Not always, I might add. Well, you know. What's what's wrong with you? Oh, sometimes you just turn up and they're ready to go and they forget to offer you a cup of tea. It's all right. You're kidding. BYO snacks, Deborah. <laughs> sometimes I BYO snack in the car for all the way home. <laughs> I cannot believe this. The, the, the disdain you're treated by these people. They think you're just another journey woman. You know, you're just better for them. Well, I kind of am. <laughs> mm. Now, have you been overseas? Yes. Where? 
New Zealand, United That's States. That's what overseas. Canada, New Zealand, United States, Canada, uh, France, England, Ireland, Scotland, uh, Spain, China, um, Bali. Mm, I didn't like it. Um, mm. Where else? I feel somewhere else, but I cannot recall. Isn't that extraordinary? The young girl who was born in Footscray Hospital, lived in Yarraville, moved south, discovered the Yarra and moved <laughs> south of the Yarra, has explored lots of, lots of the world. Yeah, that, that's, sure. that's a great thing about living in this country, especially if you've got a job. Yeah, and you got, got dispo- you got disposable income. You can do things. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. So, are you actually paying taxes yet on this job, or is it? Yeah, you do pay taxes. So you're yeah. making a profit. Yeah. What, what 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 about GST? Is that involved? Yeah, I pay GST. You got to pay GST on books. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Well, yeah, I can't really remember how that works to be honest, because I don't tend to handle the the selling of the books i leave that to other people like Mm. percy for instance he's taken his book to readings and has readings sell his book Mm. and people can order some books like that book that you've got Mm. in front of you that is through the company that asked me to write the book Mm. so they handle everything to do with that i'm going to use the a word amazon what do you think about them and publishing you got 30 seconds (laughs) (laughs) i don't have a great deal of opinion about them because i don't have that much to do with them i do put them some books up on amazon whether there's a lot of sales or not is it another matter i think it's a good way to get your name out there booktopia is the local model though i'd be going with that right well thank you very much deborah with the ah golf it was a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you, Thanks, Kelly, for your... Uh, marvellous having you, Deborah. Thanks, yeah. Kelly. Thanks, welcome. Jo. Say yeah. welcome. Well, I want to say welcome to her. I said, you're so welcome. You're kidding. She's just a guest. <laughs> it's like... I mean, it's the, we should treat her the way she treats her clients, all right? With respect. And a cup of tea. And a <laughs> cup of tea. All the best. Thank you very much and all the best in your endeavours. And I, it's a great... Uh, work you are doing keeping memories alive for so many people thank you did you know that 3cr received its community radio license in 1976 our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023 become a 3cr subscriber today Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.